I would invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes as we turn to chapter 3 this morning. Our text this morning is the first 15 verses. If you would stand with me and hear now the word of the Lord that is living and powerful, that is authoritative and sufficient, the very word of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pick up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. Time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have blessed us with this, Your Word. We thank You, O Lord, that we have Your Word written, that we have Your Word accessible, that we have Your Word to study and meditate upon. We pray, O oh Lord, that this word would bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever had the experience of being absolutely certain that something should happen at a certain time and it doesn't? You may have even had that this morning. You may have woken up this morning and looked outside, opened the door or the window, or said, you know, this just isn't right. It's not supposed to be 40 degrees today. I'm supposed to be able to wear that new summer dress. I'm supposed to be able to wear that light suit that I bought. I don't have to put on a winter coat. There may be other occasions in which you've been certain that things should just happening in a certain way at a certain time, and they don't. 
you may have a different experience. And that has been that after thinking things work a certain way, all of a sudden you really see how they work. This often happens first at a very powerful level when we go to college. We say to ourselves many times, don't we college students? We say, that's why dad's always saying that. Oh, now I see why mom's saying shut the light off because I don't want the light bill to be $200. We see behind the events. Well, those two seemingly disparate things are what Solomon is addressing for us this morning. You see, Solomon is addressing for us, uh, once again, the meaning of life. The meaning of life from our perspective. And there is a sense in which he is saying, it all depends on your perspective. If you want to see the forest, you've got to step back. You've got to have a certain perspective. If you're caught up with your nose against a tree, you won't know what the forest looks like. And so this morning, what we're going to see is what life looks like for those who are bound up, their nose smack up against a tree. It's the view from time. And it's a weary view. But Solomon says you don't need to be locked into that view. No. The grandeur and the majesty of the world is open to see all that God does if we take the view from eternity. We might say it's the difference between the view under the sun and the view under heaven. And then finally, Solomon teaches us that if we have the proper view, if we don't have the view from time, but if we have the view from eternity, there is comfort to be had in the providence of God. A view from time, a view from eternity, and comfort in the providence of God. Let us begin by looking at the view from time. Solomon begins with this long couplet of poetry, series of couplets, I might say. So much so that as I was reading it, it probably got a bit monotonous for you. There's a time for this and a time for that, a time for the other thing and a time for the fourth thing. And he goes on and on. And he does this purposefully to gather in everything because he wants to show that as we look at the world outside of the perspective of God, we see a mundane existence. We see that we really have no freedom like we think we have. We're not independent. We're not masters of our fate. We're not captains of our own souls. We have no freedom. He covers everything in this couplet. Time to be born and a time to die. From beginning to end. This is a Hebrew form of poetry called a merism. What's a merism? That's a Dollar and fifty cent word for A to Z. Soup to nuts. From the beginning to the end. Everything in between is included. And the emphasis here is on everything. Solomon says in verse 1, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. There is nothing that there is not a time for. This is a prescriptive, this is, excuse me, this is a descriptive list. He's describing everything in the world. This is not a prescription. This is not saying, before you die, you better make sure it's the right time. Before you cry, you better make sure it's the right time. We sometimes think that because, as I've mentioned to you before, of the famous 60s song by the birds. Most people don't realize this, but that song is exactly this text. 
with six words added on to the end. It's not too late. I swear it's not too late. You see, they thought that there's a time for everything and we just need to make sure that we manipulate the time. That we see it and we seize it. And so this grand description of life by Solomon becomes a political rallying cry for a peace movement. But you see, that's not what Solomon is at here. He's describing that all events are outside our control from when we are born to when we die. Big events like war and peace. Small events like weeping or laughing. All are beyond our control. And we can feel the oppression of the time. We can't choose when to be born. We can't choose when to die. Circumstances come to us and we don't choose to weep. We cannot help but weep. Circumstances come to us and we laugh because of what we are confronted with. You see, it seems as if there's no freedom in our actions. That's life under the sun. But as Christians, we need to be careful that we don't fall into that trap. I imagine that this sort of mentality, this sort of viewpoint, was exactly what gripped the disciples the day after the crucifixion. They thought there's no hope. Things just happen. There's a time for the Romans to crush us again. Maybe there'll be a time for us to rise up. We thought we knew the time, but we didn't. Life is just going on just like it did. It seems like this time with the Romans is just like the time with the Babylonians. It's just like the time with the Assyrians. It's just like the time with the Egyptians. We thought things might be different, but now we see everything's the same. It's crushing. We also see that this view from time is that there's no permanence. You could just feel the rhythm of this. We're born, but it's not so long before we die. We may be laughing now, but we know a time for weeping is coming. We may be dancing now, but we know mourning is just around the corner. We don't know how long it will be, but that the opposite circumstance will grip us. There is an ever-changing nature of the world. Even our deliberative actions seem to be caught up in this. How many of you have said this to yourself? I never imagined the time when I would be... This is something you've chosen to do, but it just seems like life keeps coming at us. It's because our longing is for permanence, and we are frustrated if we don't have it. Even children experience this, right? How often, kids, have you said to yourself, oh, I wish this day would never end, right? You're out playing with your friends, having the time of your life, and it gets dark, and mom and dad say, come on in, the day's over, you have to be done. And you think, oh, if I would just stay today, forever, life would be so much better. There's no permanence. There's, we can't go a sermon in Ecclesiastes without some more pop references. When I was in high school, there was a a song by a band by the name of Rush called Time Stand Still, where they said, I turn my back on the wind to catch my breath before I start off again. Driven on without a moment to spend. Time stands still. I'm not looking back, but I want to look around me now. I want to see more of the people and the places that surround me now. Have you ever felt that way? You just wish 
your kids would stay the same age forever. Or that you'd have all of the physical ability that you have right now. But time keeps rolling on. Just as Jim Croce said, he wished he could put time in a bottle so that he could spend eternity with the one that he loves. We have this longing for permanence and this cycle comes at us and it can be crushing. But also under the sun, this list shows us that oftentimes life seems to have no meaning because unlike the animals around us, our dogs, our cats, our gerbils, who seem to go right along no matter whether it rains or it snows or it's sunny, we know what life is like. We know we can't get a handle on it. We know there are problems. We know that there is an aching. We know there's something more. And that frustrates us. Because we can't see, as Solomon says, events from beginning to end. Even if we have the historical perspective, we begin to think in terms of cycles. We think of even our nation's short history, and we compare it to other nations. And we think, there really isn't any meaning. There's nothing permanent. And if that's the case, then we're really just filling out time. Whether it's time to weep or time to laugh or time to build or time to tear down. You know, it doesn't really matter, does it? Should we make this the time to build a building or a time to knock one down? Should we make this a time to gather together God's people into a church or should we make it a time to scatter? It really doesn't matter because there's nothing that's permanent. This is the view from time. It's the view of life under the sun. It is the view from life for you today if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. If today you woke up and came to church hoping to find a little bit of comfort and meaning for your soul in seeing other people in suits or in singing Christ the Lord is risen to death or in hoping that the weather would be nice, let me give you a dose of reality. You will wake up tomorrow and it will be a time to cry or a time to laugh or a time to dance or a time to mourn. You can't find meaning in that. That view from time is oppressive. Well, as is Solomon's want, he gives us first this oppressive, difficult view of life, but he turns here. And you remember that I said last week that verse 24 of chapter 2 was a turning point in the book? This continues that, because after he goes through this series of couplets, he says in verse 9, he asks the same question he's asked before. What gain has the worker from his toil? But whereas before in chapter 1, he threw up his hands in disgust and said, well, nothing. I work and then I give it to somebody and he wastes it. I can't take it with me. Here the answer is this. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart. You see... There is indeed a time for everything. For everything there is a season and for every matter under heaven. This is a change in perspective. Look at what verse 1 says. There is a time for everything under heaven. Not under the sun, under heaven. You see, he began speaking of the Lord in verse 24 of chapter 2 and he continues to press this point home. He says, there is a design to the world. It is God who gives times and seasons. 
You see, this word for season here, for everything there is a season, isn't the word for fall or winter or spring. Because we know that those things even themselves fluctuate. It's supposed to be spring out there right now. Certainly doesn't feel like it to me. It doesn't even feel like a buffalo spring. Feels like fall or winter to me. But you see, there is a season, there is an appointed time, there is a critical time for everything because God has determined that it be so. It is the design of God that focuses and orders life. You see, God is intimately connected with time. God is concerned with time. It is God who plays out these times for living and dying, for weeping and mourning, for laughing and dancing. You see, God is concerned not just with time, but with the events that happen. God has laid forth in His purpose, in His will, our very days. I have a friend who is in the chaplaincy in Afghanistan. And I sent him an email and I said, Now you be careful out there. Pop culture reference. Hill Street Blues. Just be careful out there. And he emailed back to me and he said, I want you to pray for me. Not that I would be safe, but that I would continue to have courage. He says, one of the great blessings that I found in my ministry here is that I can go about and I don't show cowardice because I know my life is secure in the Lord. I know I will not die a day before the Lord has determined. And that allows him to look at life positively. Because he knows God is concerned with his time and with all events. And he knows even more than that, something that you need to know, that God is concerned with you. Yes. It's not just abstractions. God is concerned with his people. He has ordained life for his people. Life has purpose. God has given to the children of man things to be busy with. He has given purpose to life. But he's given more than purpose to life. He's given beauty to life. Look at what the text says here. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, I've warned you before about taking verses out of context. You take this verse out of context, you could slap that on a pretty pastel Hallmark card. Everything is so beautiful in its time. But that's not what Solomon is saying here. He's saying everything is beautiful, is good, is orderly in its time because God has made it so. He's echoing Genesis 1, where each day after creation, God said, and it is good, and it is good, and it is good, and it is very good. This is how God orders the world, so that it is good in its time. And we see this from an eternal perspective. When, we're, when our noses are up against the trees, we can't see it. Have you ever had this experience? You're looking at one of these 3D puzzles, and it looks like a mishmash that a three-year-old drew, and it gives you a headache. And then all of a sudden, you see the pattern? And it jumps out. And all that mishmash of colors now is organized. It is a creation. It is something that has purpose and clarity. It's because your perspective has crystallized. Now, some of us, if you're like me, have difficulty with that. You have to hold the book like this and back and forth, and Deb tries to give me every trick under the sun in order to do it. 
Some of you, you just lay it out and see it. But that's kind of how life is like at times. Sometimes it's more difficult to get perspective, to see the eternal perspective, to see the beauty in life. You see, life is to be a source of delight for us. The word here for beautiful encompasses also the word for good and pleasant. Life is supposed to be enjoyable from a proper perspective. Even the difficulties of life, because we know the Lord is in them. God, you see, is able to work good even out of difficulty and sin. He is able to make weeping good in its time. To make mourning good in its time. You all understand that perfectly well, I think, in the big picture. For if I were to say to you, God is able to make goodness and beauty and purpose out of death and sin in the death of His Son on the cross, I would get an amen. You need to have that same mentality when you go through a rough patch in your marriage. You need to have that same mentality when someone is sick in the family. You need to have that same mentality in your life that God is in complete control. If God can conquer the power of sin and death, break the bounds of death, raise His Son from the dead, He surely can buttress your marriage. If He is in the business of redeeming the universe, He certainly can help you with your parenting. You see, there is purpose to life, there is beauty to life because of God, not because of circumstances. You see, the cross yields to the empty tomb. And that's not just true on the cosmic level. That is true in your life as well. There is a crossing of the River Jordan. There is an end in which we will look back in eternity and say, oh, that's why that happened. I thought it was just because I should be miserable that month. Or I thought it was because of this, or I thought it was because of that. No, we will see with God's eyes. We will see the eternal perspective. You see, for those disciples, it took but a few days, and they were immediately given perspective. For some of us, it takes 40 to 50 years to get that perspective. But the principle is the same. It's seeing from eternity. We see the beauty in life. And we see, therefore, also the meaning in life. Look at what the text says. That God has, verse 10, given to the children of men business to be busy with. And in verse 13, that eating and drinking and taking pleasure in your work is God's gift to man. You see, these times, our life, our circumstances, these are an assignment from God, a gift from God. They are not stopgaps to be gritted through. They are opportunities to see the work of God in our life and our challenge to our faith, to exercise faith in the Lord, to seek Him, to love Him more, to testify to His goodness to us. This is the purpose of life. You see, there is a change in meaning from the change of the perspective. Look at verse 11. In verse 11, Solomon writes that he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. 
You see, we have in us what Augustine has called this God-shaped hole. And nothing but God can fill it. And many, many spend their entire lives trying to fill up that hole with food, drink, work, acquaintances, any number of things. Yes, even dresses and hats and special occasions. But you see, what Solomon says here is the difference is our perspective in knowing God. Because this longing, we have this longing for life and eternity, but we can't get to the bottom of it in ourselves. That longing just causes us to be more frustrated, to see these times, to see life spinning out of control. But when we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the key to all of time and eternity. You see, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot know the meaning of life comprehensively. For what is the meaning of life? It's encapsulated well in our first catechism question. The meaning of life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So how can you expect to know the meaning of life? You could wander to the highest mountains in Tibet and the deepest forests in South America and the widest deserts in Africa and you will not find the meaning of life. If you want to find the meaning of life, if you want to remind yourself of the meaning of life, don't seek it in circumstances. Seek it in the Word of God and in His Son. Because you see, that's where permanence is found. Look at verse 11 where he says, He has put eternity into man's heart, and the same word is used in verse 14. For I perceive that whatever God does endures or is an eternity forever. Endures for an an eternity. You see, God has put eternity in our hearts and that eternity is His work. The work of His Son in this world and in our lives. That is where permanence is found. This is the perspective that we must have. This is the perspective of victory. In looking at life and saying, it doesn't matter what's going on around me. God is at work. This is the perspective of the godly. So we've seen the view from time, and we've seen the view from eternity. Well, the question might be, why might we have a view from eternity? And I think Solomon gives us the answer in the rest of our text. It's not just so that we can know... It's not just so the crossword puzzle is figured out. It is for us, for our comfort, to find comfort in the providence of God. Look with me at verse 12. Solomon begins two short phrases or paragraphs the same way. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift. Man. And then in verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor nothing taken from it. The first thing that we see is in the providence of God that their blessing is found. You see, there's this great contrast that he puts before us. 
The earthbound man, the man under the sun, is a prisoner. He is locked into the cycle of life. He can't break it. He can't even bend it. He sees the same cycle happening over and over and over again, and it is crushing. You see, the earthbound man, the man without God, looks at the death of our Lord and says, just like everybody else, and then, in order to give himself comfort, says, well, you know, there's these stories, but I bet you there's this tomb we could find, and, oh yeah, it's got a person named uh, Joseph in it, and a person whose name sounds like Mary in it, oh, and I think there's this name Jesus in it, that must be Jesus' bones. Let's get the Titanic guy out here and let's prove that he's just like everybody else. So that everyone else can share my pain and my numbness. You see, blessing only comes from God and purpose in God and having an eternal perspective. You see, life for the man under heaven is described as enjoyment. He is eating, he is drinking, he is being joyful, and that is the gift of God. There is a marked contrast between this chapter, the end of this chapter, and the end of chapter 2, and chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. It's night and day. It's sadness and gladness. It is a movement from the secular to the theistic. From pessimism to optimism. You see, Solomon is laying forth for us a great biblical principle. It's a principle that Paul enunciates in Romans 11, where he says this in verse 22, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. You see, to you who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to you, life has purpose and meaning. Life is full of blessing. To you, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest blessing imaginable. Opening up paradise, as we say. But to those who are under the sun, to those who do not want God to exist, to those who want to continue to pretend they have freedom, there is no blessing. There is merely the severity of God. And the same event is judgment. You see, when we say He is risen, we think of joy. But to those who are not in Christ, the resurrection from the dead is the gavel banging down on eternity. That Jesus Christ is King, and that none can gainsay Him, and none can oppose Him, and there is no life outside of Him. Death itself cannot hold Him. There is no other choice. As I have said to you before, there is no Switzerland on this issue. You are either for Christ or you are against Him. This is a blessing from God. Coming back full circle to what Solomon has said in verse 24, that there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and enjoy his work. It's because it's the gift of God. But finally, we see that there is great security in God. Look at verse 14. For I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. You see, God's work, God's work in our lives and God's work in the universe is permanent. It cannot be changed. 
That's why I will be very honest with you. When the news reports came out about the, uh, the tomb in Jerusalem, I didn't even pay attention to read more than one internet story. It was a waste of my time. Because nothing changes. What God has done is permanent. It cannot be changed. God's work endures forever. Think of the security in that. There may come a day, Christian, in your lifetime, or in your children's lifetime, when the powerful and mighty United States Armed Forces is roundly defeated. There may come a day when we are ruled by foreign nations. I pray it not be the case, but it may come. And the universe will not fold in on itself. Circumstances change. But the work of the Lord endures forever. And the work of the Lord in your life endures The work of Jesus Christ cannot be changed, cannot be gainsaid, no matter how many books are written, no matter how many atheists argue on Larry King, no matter how many people say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter if he rose again. It's just only important that we have hope. None of that wickedness or sweet, smarmy vacuousness can change the work of God. It is permanent. It is effective and complete. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. You see, God has determined the beginning and the end. And there is no change. And finally, something we long for in our security. Look at the end of verse 15. And God seeks what has been driven away. You see, in the midst of the hubbub of all our activity... We are totally secure because God watches over everything. That same oppression that others feel because there is a time for everything and there's no escaping the way the world works is the greatest comfort to the Christian. There's no sense, we might say, paraphrasing the Bible, to worrying about anything because it's all in God's hands. God's in charge of it. Will our church grow? Will we build a building? Will my children be safe? Will my grandchildren be raised right? Will I have my job? All of these things may change, but our security is found in the Lord. I would invite you in conclusion to have the words of the psalmist echo in your ears. In Psalm 31, Verse 14 and 15, where the psalmist writes, and I'm certain that Solomon had this in his mind, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. I put my faith in you, O Lord Jesus Christ. Come what may, that is the safest place to be. Better to be in the middle of the front lines with no body armor and bullets whizzing around in the hand of the Lord than in the deepest, darkest vault in the safest place in the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with this, your word. We thank you that you hold us in the palm of your hands. We thank you that you have shown to us that you are master of the world.
that you have declared to all by breaking the barriers of death, by solving the problem of sin, by redeeming your people. And we pray this morning, O Lord, that you would show this to many, that you would call many into your kingdom, and that even that you would show us yourself, O Lord. We pray this morning, come quickly, O Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.